If you have your Bibles, please open up to 1 Peter chapter 3. If you are unfamiliar with your Bibles, it will look kind of like that, right? It's one of the books at the back end of the New Testament. It's a short one, the first letter of Peter. I'm going to read this scripture, and then we will pray. Beginning of verse 3, it says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, You believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that your word that was written so many thousands of years ago, that we would be able to uh, just kind of see its uh, divine nature, Lord. This is your word. It is Uh, and influenced and inspired by your spirit. So Lord, I pray that uh, that would be evident this morning as you walk through these words. So open us up, Lord, open our hearts to receive the word that you have for us and open up our ears to hear. And if, Lord, there's anything that I have prepared that should not be said and something I have not prepared that should, may your spirit make that known to me. We love you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, it is important that as a church, uh, we do address current issues from the pulpit. Well, the balance, you know, as we know in our day and age, issues rise and fall quicker than the, you know, morning fog. And so we can't get obsessed with that or it'll be an exhausting process. And I don't intend to do that. But uh, as you know, almost not even two weeks ago, technically it was last week, if you, in case you forgot, there was a presidential election. And uh, I'm not very old, but we are witnessing a fervor that is kind of unparalleled, I think, at least in my lifetime and in recent memory for probably most of you in this room. And I am seeing the church even get more wrapped up in this fervor than I've ever seen uh, before in my life. And even to see the church almost play some kind of central process or even play a, um, a loud voice in all of this. Now, I want to make it abundantly clear from the pulpit this morning. I want to say a lot of things this morning. Um, you know, I, I, I want to be as true as I can to the word, to historic Christianity, to how we have understood our modern but very ancient faith for thousands of years. If I'm in error, I, I, I would ask somebody to please show me and challenge me. I'm, I want to be open for correction. But I do believe in our unique times that we are living in. If the church is to 
really pick up our, 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 our influence in terms of looking at church history, looking at present times, and knowing what happens when the church is flourishing in a nation, and what happens when the church is unleashed to, to live according to things like the Sermon on the Mount, the, the, the way of life that Christ has laid out for us. I, I believe that the church is to really do this in modern times, is to be this light, this, this lamp post, right? This, this bright and shining light of the good news of Jesus. We have to learn to begin the slow descent of pulling ourselves away from political candidates and parties and issues and pulling away especially all of our hopes in that system. We need to learn to participate in them as the call to love our neighbors inevitably leads us to consider the impact of our vote on our neighbors, but we need to do so in a manner that is secondary to our call in Christ. I think we need to rebuild and almost reconstruct pieces of what we can call a Christian worldview and also some theological foundations, as there have been some very foundational pieces that have been missing uh, for decades now. Uh, Just a little brief history here. Uh, Jerry Falwell in the late 70s and early 80s started something called a moral majority movement when a generation began rejecting their parents' way of life and embracing the sexual revolution of the 60s, leading to the first fears in our nation that Christianity might become a minority faith in our nation. Then certain Christian and political leaders had the idea of combining Christian ideals with political candidates, and a rallying call was made for the moral majority to back a candidate in order that Christianity may still retain some kind of influence in our nation. Uh, it's a little bit simplified, but it's generally the picture. And Ronald Reagan kind of picked up that for the first time. Now, ever since, much of the church, much of the church, not all of it, but a lot of the church has been living in this kind of upside-down world of thinking that if Christianity and the hope of our nation is now kind of dependent on the right issues to be implemented from the top down, and has become wrapped up in desiring offices of power to construct what is best and ideal for America. And now here we are, all of these decades later, many Christians fighting right now as we speak for an office of power, the most powerful offices in the land and even the world, trying to convince ourselves that Jesus in his weakness, his poverty, his low social class, and even in his humiliation, asked us to bring a nation into his likeness by wielding the most power possible. If you recall from our Philippian sermon series, the Bible shows Jesus giving up his power for the service of others. We also see Jesus saying in Matthew 20, 25 through 28, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as a son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Rulers come to be served, and Jesus came to serve. He was indeed a king and a ruler, but his version of ruling was upside down according to all of our worldly understandings and constructs of power and authority and kingly authority. He came as one who serves. And that describes Jesus' kingship 
quite different from any other rulers in this world. Now, Christianity is the good news of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection. It is the message that Jesus has brought into this world a reordering of humanity by absorbing the justice and judgment due against all wickedness and sin in this world and even our own. On our behalf and through his resurrection, renewing humanity by inviting them to a new life through faith and allegiance to a new king, a king who wears a crown of thorns and not one of gold, a king who submitted himself to humiliation and in innocence suffered for us, even suffered for his enemies, extending an offer of mercy and grace and forgiveness to those who radically did not deserve it. As you will see today, the message of the resurrection is more than just a message. It is our living hope. Because the church is supernaturally equipped with an ability to live the resurrection life. A life of love, of generosity, of meekness, of humility, an upside-down living as we share the good news of Jesus Christ. We don't wield swords against our enemies, but towels to wash their feet. As even Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, washed the feet of Judas, his own betrayer. We're going to look at the immense power of this kind of distinctly Christian life this morning, and I'm going to call us to action, as our nation does not need more political fervor and activism. No, our nation needs to see a church living out the hope of the resurrection life. We're going to see what that means this morning. So I want to look at this scripture in 1 Peter. I want to, and this will be an unfinished sermon. I won't be able to address everything, of course, right? But in this passage, uh, I I pray that uh, we can see what, what Peter is saying here by the end of our time today, that we can learn how to take this kind of first and necessary steps of pulling our hopes and dreams kind of out of this political process, this slow descent from attachment to political candidates and a firmer attachment to our living hope, which is Jesus Christ. And by extension, you, if you are in Christ this morning, who are filled with the Spirit, know what task is at hand for us, a new world that so desperately needs to hear and to see the good news of Jesus. So let's begin in verse 3 in 1 Peter chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Blessed be the God and Father. It is according to his great mercy that he has caused us to be born again. A new birth, a regeneration, as the theologians call it, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To invoke a blessing on God is to say he's worthy of that blessing. It is to praise him, it is to worship him, it is to recognize that he alone is worthy of our worship. And not only is he God our Father, but he's also the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is where we venture into very Christian territory, if you will, heavenly territory, the reality of mercy. God is a God of mercy, 
full of seemingly paradoxes, right? That the all-powerful, all-sovereign Lord of the universe that has all authority, as we sung earlier, is merciful. To give mercy can appear to be a sign of weakness. It is to give undeserved love towards others. It is to give something that nobody earned and to even give up rights and privileges and love for the sake of others. I am again to remind you of the kind of crown that our king wore that caused great pain and agony as the thorns dug into his flesh. What mercy as he was suffering for you and I. Now, when we hear stories of mercy, we, are, we get amazed, right? Just in September in Manhattan, you can kind of find these stories, I don't know, every couple of years in Manhattan when something like this happens. There's always a hero that pops up, right? James Muholland, a man who sold bouquets of flowers and balloons on the streets of Manhattan, just in September was waiting for a train in the subways beneath the city. He slips and he falls onto the tracks on the way down. He hits his head on the tracks and he is knocked out unconscious. And the Rover train is just seconds away. Robert Richer, a subway worker, along with another anonymous person who chose not to be known and kind of vanished from the scene, without even thinking, he jumps on the tracks, leapt onto the subway, pulled up this unconscious man, only kind of making up seconds before a train came roaring over to a stop. Now these two men, almost by instinct, were not thinking of themselves, but saw somebody else's life as so important that they would put their own at risk to save them. And everyone survived and is okay. We hear stories like that, and we wonder, what, I do? what would I do? Right? What would I do if I saw somebody fall in the tracks and heard a train come in? Would I have the nerve to actually jump and do something knowing that I might actually die? Another story, the same thing in 2007, a guy did it, but he didn't have a chance to get back up. He actually put the guy down underneath the train and it rolled over them. And they turned out okay. Would you have the, the ability to do so? When we hear stories like that, we're amazed at the kind of mercy and grace and love that would propel somebody to risk their own life for someone else. And it reminds us of God, of the good news, which in similar but much more glorious fashion didn't just risk his life for others, but gave his life for others. Our hope is not in a dead man. It is a living hope because the one who gave himself for us didn't remain dead. We, we talk about often the death of Christ being merciful, but Peter here does something that we don't normally do, which is to call the resurrection an act of mercy from God, of being due to the mercy of God. And this is where our hope lies, in the resurrected Christ. He is our hope. Our hope indeed is a person. And because it's a person, it is a living hope, a living and breathing hope with skin and bones enthroned in the heavenly places and enthroned in the hearts of his people. Now, Christianity claims death as an enemy. It claims that all the divisions, the sin, the strife, the disorder in our world, and all the wars and conflict and lying and stealing and hatred is related to death and to things of death and does not lead to human flourishing, but rather human destruction. 
and the resurrection of Christ serves as the seeds of the reversal of all of these things that will finally spring up to fulfillment on his second advent when he returns. This is Christian hope. Hope in the mercy of this eternal future when our Lord returns to this earth. We hope in this ultimate reversal where all of these things are thrown forever into the lake of fire. The resurrection of Christ witnessed by hundreds of people when it occurred is indeed an act of mercy. Acts as a promise of mercy from God. Peter continues on in verses 4 through 5. He says that we are born again into hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This future inheritance is wrapped up in heaven, kept by God. It is imperishable, it cannot be defiled, and it cannot fade away. There is a future permanence to this, and its future permanence is being sustained right now in heaven, waiting to be unleashed and untied to this world when Christ returns. Now, however, says the Apostle Peter, that you are right now being guarded by faith for this future salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In other words, God is actively guarding you right now. He is actively guarding your faith. Because faith is more than just believing in God, but it refers also to our committed allegiance to God, the working out of our faith, our obedience, and the willingness to take on that resurrected life today. There is a strange and interesting cooperation of God working within our faith today, that we labor to cling to Christ as our only hope, and that God is helping us to do so. This reminds us of this mercy of God yet again, as our faith we have in Ephesians chapter 2, it says it, it's not even fully ours. It does not ultimately find its origin in us, but rather in God, who gifted us with the faith in that moment when our eyes become opened to his reality. And now Peter, as he writes these things, we'll kind of take a little pause here. He is writing to a church under pressure because they were under persecution because of their faith in Christ. And this is where it is very important that we kind of perk up. If you're asleep, wake up, you know, right here. We got to kind of wake up and listen to this, right? Uh, But we have to listen to these words and look at our life today and, and understand what this living hope means as it's played out when we are under pressure. They were under pressure because in the Roman way of life, all the Roman gods and their worship systems, which often included the emperor himself claiming to be a god and to be worshipped, all of that was intricately woven into most areas of society to where if you wanted to get a job, you needed to worship whatever Roman gods were attached to your trade and your guild and to invoke their blessing on your work. And often in some of the Roman cities, especially to even buy and sell, required a offering of incense to the Roman gods or even to Caesar himself. Now what happens when a group of people start claiming that those gods are actually no gods at all, but rather a man who rose from the dead, killed by the Romans, um, has proclaimed that new life and salvation is available to all who commit their faith and allegiance to him, 
suddenly the Roman way of life is being disrupted. Christians were first called atheists by the Romans, actually, because they disbelieved the Roman gods. And whenever Paul showed up preaching this message, cities said, get out of here. You are disrupting this order we have in this Roman way of life. And if you make the Romans mad, you disrupt things, you know what, what war machine is invoked to come and shut it down. Paul, get out of here with this Christianity business. He was often whipped and thrown in jail, but he continued to preach on. The churches that Peter was writing to in this book, they were knee-deep in this, and they were under pressure. Now, what does Peter do? Does he pray that the persecution will stop? No, because in those days, there was actually a given assumption that says, if if you're confessing to be a Christian, you can anticipate to be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's what Paul said. And after all, we do worship a guy who was brutally murdered. So we need to kind of look at that and expect something, right, in our lives, uh, at least at minimum not to be carefree as we pursue Jesus. Now I'm going to look at Peter's words, knowing all of that, and how he shepherds the church through this pressure that they are under. Verses 6 through 7 says this, In this you rejoice. In all those beautiful resurrection realities we talked about, the living hope of Jesus, you rejoice in that. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now such trials plunge our faith into the furnace and it proves as a test to see what will come out of that fire. Will our faith be proved to be genuine? What a hard test persecution is. But Peter says we are actually to rejoice in that because such trials do sharpen us, right? They make us really ask questions of what is most important right? Is my allegiance to Jesus really first and foremost in my own life? And as we do so, we find that in the end, all this ensures that we may be still found to be praising and rejoicing in Christ, in his glory and in his honor on the day when he returns. Now, I want to go backwards, back to how I introduced everything today and ensure that we have all of our thoughts rightly ordered this morning. I do think for much of the church for far too long, have expected far too much from this political process. And we have expected far too much from our participation in it. I I even go back from day one in our early American years, I think there's an error that was committed. Cotton Mather and his City on a Hill, a Nation of God language, the Puritans who escaped persecution from England and Europe. uh, what, What would happen in this new land when people showed up who didn't identify as Christian. We found out when people in Salem, Massachusetts, rumors of witches came about. How do these early Christians respond? By putting them on trial and having them executed, showing that so quickly they actually fell into the very same sin that they tried to escape. The authoritarian version of Christianity that says we must enforce our Christian values from the highest authority available to those beneath the system. This indeed was not and is not the way of Christ. 
It is not the cup you drink. He was not one who asked to be served, but he was one who served. Now those in worldly authority, they must snuff out their enemies. Those who serve find their enemies, however, as opportunities to love just as Christ did when he was silent before those who spit in his face and even called out prayers for those who drove the nails into his hand. As Peter called for his church to rejoice when they were under pressure, knowing that it would only lead to a deeper and more golden and purified faith, the Apostle Paul has this to say to another church in Rome who were also under pressure. Romans 12, 17, 17 through 21. This is the word of the Lord. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Don't we need that today? Doesn't our country need this today? Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, this is our jobs here, if your enemy is hungry, we get our swords out and go to battle? No, we feed him. If he is thirsty, do we withhold the drinks and watch them suffer? No, says Paul, we give them something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on their head. Do not over, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Our living, proof, our living hope is proof that God will come to empty out this world of all the wickedness. But church, that is not our job. That is the Lord's. It is ours to live peaceably with all, to repay no one evil for evil, but carefully and thoughtfully live honorable lives. If there is evil and injustice in this world, we counter it not by an equal injustice, but we break that Newtonian law and we overcome evil with its opposite by doing good in Christ. If someone takes a swing at you, take the punch, lean down, and start washing their feet. Now, when I was younger, I suffered from road rage. Does anybody have that problem? Not rage. Yeah, some people do. It's like, oh, yeah, right? It can happen, okay? So my lid would just flip on the, the flip of a dime when I was younger on the road, and it would just, I would lose my mind sometimes. Georgia had terrible drivers. I don't really see what I saw up here. Georgia was nuts. Well, one day, the roles are reversed in Jersey because then I did something stupid. I pulled out in front of somebody. And then that guy flipped out, right? I mean, he was this far from my bumper. He was giving me all sorts of fun sign language, right? And you could see the words being mouthed from him, and he was just swerving and beeping and flashing his lights, and he was mad. And then I started to get mad. I was like, what the fuck? You know, then I was like, no, 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 I'm going to pray. I'm not going to pull over and start, I'm going to pray. Lord, call me, call me. So I pulled him to my destination, and he followed me, and he pulls up beside me, rolls his window down, and he starts going at it. I calmly walk up as he is yelling, and he opens the door. I mean, this guy's ready to, like, go, okay? And I say, hello, my name is Daniel. It's nice to meet you. What's your name? And he, this is a true story. I'm not making this stuff up. He kind of stopped opening the door, and he kind of was just looking, like, what is happening right now? It's like an angry confusion, you know? And I said, I want to say I'm sorry for what I did. I'm sorry I've upset you so much. Can you forgive me for what I did? He drops another nice remark with more sign language, and he closes his door, and he speeds off. 
Now, this is a silly example, right? I don't like sharing examples from my successes as I have way more instances of my failures and my road rage, okay, that far outnumbered my successes. But we are to be known as people of peace, choosing not to rage in this world, but to do all we can to speak truth while living in peace with all. There are many people in both if you go back to this conversation about the left and the right who are radically emotionally caught up in this whole election season. And sadly, I see too many Christians caught up in it. Our living hope is not who is in the White House or what political party is in charge. If you cannot talk about this election without getting angry, sad, hopeless, or overly excited and full of giddy joy, why? If you find yourself having a hard time talking to certain friends or family members because they voted differently than you. Why? If you think the hope for our nation rises or falls on our electoral process, hate to say it, I think you've been played like a flute by those billboards that says, vote like your life depends on it. Your neighbor's life depends on what they do with Jesus and how they respond to Jesus. I long for the day when the American church is known by our love for God and one, one another and not by whom we voted for. Peter closes a section with precious words that are really kind of aimed at you and I. Verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now these Christians like us, they never saw Jesus. This is some decades after his resurrection. Yet they still believed in him. They rejoiced in him with joy so grand and so high that there was no ability to even express their joy, and their joy was filled with glory. Such joy sustains them to obtain the very outcome of their faith, the salvation of their souls. We must know that our understanding of the word soul, okay, we can often think of it as just some kind of like disembodied version of ourselves that, you know, goes and floats away upon death. And I do think we have a soul and a spirit that's true, and it certainly includes that. But really, it's much more than that. If you look into the original Greek behind it, it's referring to our whole selves, your body, your soul, your mind, your heart, your strength, all of you. Your whole person, your whole self is what Jesus is after. Not some of you, but your salvation is a salvation of all of you. Heart, mind, body, and soul. Just as Christ was resurrected from the dead, his whole self resurrected from the dead, you also will be resurrected from the dead. And the Christian claim is that your body will be renewed in that day, just like his. And then our salvation will be complete. Now, Peter's words this morning should have the effect of dethroning all of our false hopes and can have the ability of unplugging our hopes and dreams from power structures in this world to achieve what we believe needs to be achieved in this world and follows the way of Christ, a life full of action, of loving our neighbor, of extending mercy and grace rather than seeking more power and more authority. Now, he doesn't call us to rebel against authority and seek an equal and opposite power to battle the other. 
Our life is to be laid down for others as we reasonably learn to participate with wisdom in our political processes, while more so embracing this in-between age before his second advent to live in this alternate kingdom that's within other kingdoms, devoting our whole selves to Christ. For our nation needs nothing more than a flourishing church in Christ, people who are radically loving God and loving neighbors, people who are sharing the gospel in word and deed, praying for a fresh filling of the Spirit to empower us and to empower our actions and give power to our words. I want to end with an example, a little clip, uh, well, the ending summary of one of my favorite books that I think really tells this story well. If you want to read Christian books, okay, if you're a, a reader like me, you want to read the most Christian books you can find, there's no one greater than Charles Dickens, all right? He, his books are amazing. Now, his famous novel, The Tale of Two Cities, tells this story beautifully well. It is an historical fiction, and it takes place during the French Revolution. This French Revolution was a chaotic revolt against the elite class, a movement to overthrow the monarchy and those in power. The favored instrument to remove the elite class was the guillotine. Many thousands literally losing their heads, and their heads were rolling in the streets when news came that someone belong to the noble class. You see, the setting of this book, the French Revolution, shows the swirling chaos of this French nation. Dickens was being careful to give hope as he wrote this story some decades after the French Revolution, when the nation of France had yet to truly settle from the chaos and England had their own class warfare happening in the 1850s. France was still stumbling to find any sort of coherent foundation. England was in danger of slipping into chaos itself. And Dickens provides a beautiful story to give hope, the hope of Christ, in fact, to a nation that so desperately needed it. The story centers around a man named Sidney Carton, a borderline alcoholic attorney who eventually falls in love with the fiancé of a man named Charles Darnay. Who, as you learn in this book, these two men were essentially doppelgangers. They looked just like one another, okay? At the end of our story here, of the story, Darnay was engaged to the woman Sidney Carton loves. And Darnay had been thrown in jail due to accusations of noble ancestry. And he was lined up for the guillotine, leaving his fiancée, who he was not yet married to, an early widow. At night, Carton pays a visit to Darnay, who is in jail. He drugs him, busts into jail, he switches clothing, and he smuggles Darnay away. No one really notices, since both men look alike, and since few people would actually want to break in jails in those days, knowing the guillotine awaited those in jail. You see, Carton was willing to pay the ultimate sacrifice for a woman he loved, as he knew that her happiness was not found in him, but in the man she loved, Charles Darnay. So as this took place, a woman who was also in jail learns of what took place. Being with Carton, the man who just substituted himself in place of Darnay, she finds great courage herself because of that act of love to face the impending guillotine. The morning of their death, they physically embrace, and she goes ahead of him to the guillotine with a deeper confidence 
for seeing Carton's sacrifice. As Carton himself walks up to the platform, all thinking he is Darnay, but in reality he is not. As he walks up into the platform before the madness of the crowd, the blade further raised high, prepared for his death, with all of the political chaos, the national upheaval of this French Revolution, Dickens perfectly and masterfully sets up the story in the novel to tell and show the world of the only hope available to a distraught nation. In a story where chaos swirls, a man is giving his life for another. Such love surfaces a beauty, an otherworldly beauty, a hope. That one grander, more masterful story can provide hope for a nation in turmoil. As Carton walks up the platform, a Bible verse comes to his mind. I am the resurrection and the life, says the Lord. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet he shall live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. As Dickens says, he walks on that platform with a peace and with the look of a prophet as he dies in place of someone else. Now this message is the same for our nation today. The American church right now, we are provided with the opportunity to shine the glory of the living hope we have in the resurrection for such a time as this. May our hope in Christ be proved distinct as we rejoice in him. And may our love a radical, supernatural love like Carton's in that story. May it surface through the church once again with our nation right now for such a time as this that will show the world the beautiful, good news of Jesus' life and death and resurrection coming through you, coming through your sacrifice in your love, in you laying yourself down for the neighbor's around you. You taking off the towel and leaning over and telling them Jesus loves you as you wash their feet. This is what our nation needs right now. And I pray that it can be lived out beginning with us in this room. I want to call the worship team up as we pray. Lord, just take a few moments to stop at the end of this sermon. Where we are thankful to live in a nation where we can participate and vote and have a voice in this process. So many nations don't even have that, Lord. We are thankful. We are thankful that you have provided the world with democracy, Lord, and our ability to truly vote for the common good, Lord, for what is best for our neighbors. But Lord, as the church, as your people, Lord, as we saw and went over in detail that living hope that we have in Jesus Christ. I pray right now that your spirit would fill us, Lord, that this coming week, even in the midst of COVID as cases are rising, and I don't know what's ahead for our nation, Lord, but would you provide this church with opportunities to radically love others, and to tell them and to call on people to, to bend their knee to King Jesus and to repent of their sins in turn. But Lord, as we do so, provide us opportunities to be generous towards them, to love them, to extend the great mercy you have extended to us 
to them. May we not join the crowds in demonizing this person or that person or calling this half of the country enemies. May we not play that game, Lord. And may we lean down and be seen as those and known as those who are loving others, Lord. May we be known by our love for one another. And Lord, as you gifted us with faith, as you are the ones who extended in the first moment when our lives or our eyes were open to you and received you as our Lord and King, may you go ahead of us in those people. May you fill them ahead of time and enlighten them and open their eyes to see the truth of your life and your death and the resurrection, that you may grant them eternal life, Lord. May we be your agents and your ambassadors in a country that desperately needs to see a unified people loving God and loving our neighbor. We entrust ourselves to this, entrust ourselves to the gospel, entrust ourselves to this good news, and may it be the guiding compass for Emmanuel Church and all that may lie ahead of us. We love you, Jesus, so much, Lord, for what hope do we have outside of the resurrection? What hope do we have outside of your coming again? And what hope do we have, Lord, outside of you, still involved in human history, still having an important role for each individual in this room to play in your ultimate plan to reconcile all things to yourself? We love you, Jesus. We pray this in your good name. Amen. Set me free, hallelujah. 
its grip on me. You have broken every chain. There's salvation in your name. Jesus Christ, my living home. Then came the morning that sealed the promise. Your buried body began to breathe. Out of the silence, the roaring lion declared the grave has no claim on me. Then came the morning that sealed the promise, your buried body began to breathe. Out of the silence, the roaring lion declared the grave has no claim on me. Jesus, yours is the victory. Hallelujah. Praise the one who set me free. Hallelujah. Death has lost its grip on me. You have broken every chain. There's salvation in your name. Jesus Christ, my living hope. Hallelujah. Praise the one who set me free. lost its grip on me. You have broken every chain. There's salvation in your name. Jesus Christ, my name. 